0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're speaking with Laura Westengard about her book, Gothic Queer Culture, Marginalized Communities, and the Ghosts of Insidious Trauma. Laura, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, it's so great to be here.
0: Yeah, great to have you. Um, you. You write in the book that you are a goth at heart. Uh, what does that? What does that mean to you? What did goth mean to you when you were growing up?
1: You know, uh, I was born in the eighties. I came of age in the nineties, and as you may know, goth subculture was a thing. Um, but I wasn't really aware of it, uh, especially as a kid in the late eighties, early nineties. I had no idea what goth. Culture meant in the way that we kind of think of it now. Um, but I did always have this kind of proclivity for the morbid and the dark and perverse. And um, I, you know, was kind of obsessed with, with ghosts and haunting. And as, like as a strange nine year old, I collected you know, vintage hats and glasses and canes and would wear them. And uh, I especially loved. The, the idea of like decaying grandeur, sort of like the, the tragedy of something that was once you know, beautiful and, and ornate, falling into disrepair, and that is a central trope of gothic literature I learned later in life. So um, I kind of always felt vaguely gothic, but now I never fit in, in a cookie-cutter way to what we think of as goth subculture.
0: Great, yeah, that makes sense. I was the only non-goth in my uh, friend group in eighth grade, so that's my connection. <laughs> Goth adjacent. <laughs> Goth adjacent, exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I did. I I don't know if you are familiar with uh, the movie Sunset Boulevard, but sure. oh boy, I was so in love with that movie, and I dressed up as Norma Desmond for Halloween when I was about ten.
0: When you were ten, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's quite early. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I feel like the Norma Desmond Halloween costume phase is usually you know, 16, 17, <laughs> right. so you're ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was interested in your des- description of goth there, just your brief description that you talked both about goth as a subculture and you know goth as, as almost like a, a literary genre. Uh, you talked about kind of decaying old buildings, which feels much more 19th century goth than maybe you know, Susie and the Banshees goth. So yeah. what is the connection between these two uses of the word goth?
1: So I am uh, an English professor, and my approach to goth is particularly literary, probably because of that. Um, but the way that uh, I put those two things together is that I think of gothic with a capital G as a literary genre. So coming out of the 18th and 19th centuries in England and in the United States, there was this genre of literature that was popular fiction. It was considered, you know, on the trashy side and it had, you know, all of these supernatural occurrences and it was associated with uh, women writers and women readers and so therefore devalued in a lot of ways, but it had decaying. Uh, often monasteries and and churches and cathedrals in old set in old medieval like Catholic countries that had you know um, perverse and power obsessed people like nuns and um, and priests who would lock uh, you know vulnerable young women in the catacombs and and have their way with them and uh, then in the nineteenth century the genre evolves to. The way we think of like the dark, unexpected, the dark, unexpected um, outcomes of technological innovations, such mm. as Frankenstein and the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and then we have uh, Dracula in the late 19th century, who brings in the very gothic figure of the vampire. And um, that's that's kind of how I talk about Gothic with the capital g, the the sort of themes and metaphors that come out of the literature that developed in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. And then Gothic with a lowercase G is the kind of the reverberations of those themes and metaphors in um, culture since then. And that includes popular culture. It includes you know contemporary television like um, the Vampire Diaries or movies and books like Twilight or True Blood. Um, but also I, it includes the kind of themes that are taken up by what we know as Goth subculture. Um, have a lot to do with like romanticism and um, anachronistic dress, like wearing Victorian lace collars with um, kind of punk hairstyles, you know, that kind of thing. So I like to make the distinction between the literary genre and then the reverberations of those kind of themes that were developed there.
0: Right, that makes sense. Um, And I often think of queer culture as being very bright and kind of fun and colorful, you know, whether you think of drag balls or David Bowie or Charles Ludlam or figures like that. But your book looks at kind of darker, more macabre, morbid manifestations of queerness. So what do you see being the connection between queerness and the gothic, both with the big G and the little g?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a huge question for me that I, I take up uh, throughout the book. But um, the first thing that that comes up for me is that the gothic fiction that I was just describing in the 18th and 19th century is kind of inherently queer in that it is uh, it is transgressive in a lot of ways. It's not only kind of like trashy reading for people who, you know, Young women who might, you know, hide those books in, under their mattresses or in the corners of their bedrooms because they're they're the the kind of material that uh, an appropriate young woman is not supposed to read, but also, it, in gothic fiction from the 18th and 19th century, there are all sorts of uh, strange non normative situations, behaviors, and occurrences that happen that uh, that scholars of gothic fiction almost always identify as kind of fundamentally queer. So that has to do with themes that, that are like um, necrophilic themes or uh, monstrosity and uh, incest and sort of power dynamics that are sexualized that I, you know, broadly characterize as sadomasochistic. Um, And so Gothic fiction is kind of inherently queer in the way that it plays with non-normativity, Um, But it also was conservative in that it brought up all of these transgressive situations and behaviors uh, only in the end to say, oh, but that's bad. You know, we need to now wrap it up and return to the status quo. And after all of this um, sort of thrilling and horrifying exposure to transgression, the status quo suddenly should seem um, comforting and like a really satisfying return um, at the end of the, the book. And so, you know, uh, I think that queer culture in the way that it's adopted gothicism is uh, a way of reappropriating that kind of conservative mode of gothic fiction that it, it says, uh, hey, you know, these marginalized characters have often been coded as queer, as someone who is not con- conforming to the norms of, you know, heteronormative culture, and therefore is, is you know, labeled as monstrous, for example. And uh, that's a way to marginalize queer folks. But but queer folks ha- have often been very good at taking those uh, cultural representations that have been designed to oppress or limit their existence and saying, Hey, you know, I am a monster and that's, that's exciting and hot and sexy. And, uh, so the sort of darker manifestations of queer culture, I think are a way of kind of playing with the, the way that queer folks have been, uh, have been marginalized through gothicism and and sort of reappropriating it and playing it back in ways that are are knowing and, uh, kind of with a wink and a nod and, and that, that is campy to a certain degree.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, in a way, goth itself is, is a kind of camp. So maybe the, that framing of kind of goth versus camp is, it's too reductive.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, yes and no, that, uh, goth expression absolutely can be camp. Like if we think about, uh, you know, Vampirism in, uh, you know, Anne Rice in the films based on the Anne Rice novels, uh, the sort of excesses of the languorous, sexy Tom Cruise as as a vampire, uh, the the excesses and tongue in cheekness of uh, gothic queer culture can certainly be camp, but also. Gothicism can sometimes be sort of excessively earnest, which Mm -hmm. is not necessarily campy until you get like, if you get so excessively earnest, does it kind of come full circle and then become camp once again, they kind of collapse into each other. So uh, I think you're right. It's a little reductive to set it up as a binary because there's just like a lot of complexity going on there in that relationship.
0: Uh, one of the case studies early in your book is on Lady Gaga's famous meat dress, uh, which I think is, is perhaps the ideal uh, case study for that intersection of goth and camp. So what do you find so fascinating about the meat dress itself and the kind of cultural uh, reaction to it?
1: Yeah, I mean, Gaga is notoriously camp. And, um, I read her as certainly Gothic. Um, she is a shape shifter. Um, she changes, uh, in a kind of David Bowie style from persona to persona. And some of those personas have been decidedly kind of dark and Gothic. And I would say that her dress era was that, um, and, Even though uh, she sort of shifts in her different manifestations, that itself can be a kind of a gothicism that shapeshifter form. Um, The meat dress, you know, was polarizing. It generated this flurry of uh, of media questioning and concern about was it appropriate? What did it mean? What was it supposed to represent? And Lady Gaga was notoriously cagey about what it represented, but eventually she sort of made a vague link between this address composed of of me and Don't Ask, Don't Tell, sort of making a connection to um, a moment of queer history that we now have kind of moved outside of. But the meat dress for me is particularly fascinating and particularly Gothic because it seems so Frankensteinian to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, Frankenstein pieced his creature together from the pieces of human and animal uh, remains that he dug up out of graves that he uh, retrieved from charnel houses and he sewed them together in order to create this this new monstrous life that he intended to be beautiful. But uh, as we know from Frankenstein, intentions don't always lead to the results that, that you expect. And so uh, Lady Gaga's meat dress was also sort of pieced together by with hunks of dead flesh. And uh, it took the human and the animal and it kind of merged them together when she put it on her body. And um, as I mentioned in the book, that meat dress was preserved and, and, um, you know, held as part of an archive. And uh, it's become a kind of a beef jerky of dresses. Uh, But it, it, it brings about all of this sort of wonder and speculation about, well, does it rot? Does it smell? Uh, are there flies that land on it? Um, and so again, it sort of like takes our cultural attention to the morbid, the kind of idea of the decaying flesh. And so I just thought that it was such a sort of interesting moment in culture that was, uh, implicitly Gothic, um, in ways that I thought were really engaging.
0: Hmm. In another chapter in your book, you argue that not only is the Gothic inherently queer, but that queer theory is Gothic. Could you just describe what you mean by that? Yeah,
1: so I, I you know, talked a little bit about how Gothic fiction is inherently queer, the way that it uh, sort of revels in transgression and uh, then returns to the status quo usually by the end. But that uh, sexual transgression is kind of the basic common denominator of Gothic fiction. Um, But I noticed as a grad student, you know, reading queer theory coming out of the, you know, from the 1990s on, that these texts that I was reading that were explicitly about queerness, about queerness acting in um, culture, within systems of oppression, and the way that uh, queer folks can kind of think about their existence in the world uh, in relation to various systems that would marginalize and oppress folks, they were infused with gothic metaphors, just Constantly, as I started to notice this, it just started to pop up again and again in all of these queer theory texts that uh, would not say that they are overtly Gothic. They just return to these metaphors like haunting, um, paranoia, accretion, sadomasochism, and um, this kind of general darkness and, and negativity in order to somehow get at the experience and the ideas that have to do with non-normative gender and sexuality in an oppressive culture. And uh, so I I argue that uh, queer theory, the, the writing that is done in order to think through ideas of queerness, uh, they're returning to Gothic metaphors for some reason. and that's really the central question that brought me to writing this book. Like why? Mm. Like what what is it that pulls together um, queerness and Gothicism? Why do they why do they kind of always seem to be threaded together? And something else that I noticed as I was uh, doing this this work in grad school was that trauma studies, the writing that, ha- that is done to think through the experience of trauma is also infused with these gothic metaphors, the same ones that pop up in um, queer theory. And so I, I sat down to write this book to think through like what is threading queerness, trauma, and gothicism together. And um, what uh, I think is really interesting is the way that when people try to talk about the experience of trauma, it is notoriously slippery. Like when someone has an experience that's traumatic, it's uh, at the same time that it it demands our storytelling, people want or need to kind of talk through their experiences of trauma. It also defies that storytelling because you can never really. Uh, communicate the full experience of of a traumatic experience for someone who has not um, had that kind of experience. And so it creates this sort of frustrating paradox. And, um, you know, people who write about queerness, sometimes they are overtly traumatized, right? There is a lot of violence around queerness and um, its other kind of intersecting aspects of identity in, in our culture. But a lot of people who write about queerness are not overtly writing about trauma. So, uh, I was wondering, you know, why did this sort of this kind of slipperiness traumatic experience, uh, why do people you know turn towards Gothicism to express that? Well, a slippery traumatic experience, something you can't quite get a hold of that's very ghostly, right It's kind of like a, a shadow flitting on the margins of our consciousness and intruding onto um, our present experience, something some past experience sort of inserting itself into our, our current um, situation. And um, so people writing about queer studies, they uh, are often not necessarily writing about overt traumas, but they're writing about sort of accumulated, structural, long-term traumas that uh, are maybe even harder to pin down and communicate because they're, they're not recognized as overtly as um, a kind of event-based trauma might be something that's like the experience of war or a rape or an accident. But um, the... Uh, my book wants to point to the way that experiences on a daily basis in a society that's structured to oppress uh, various folks who are non-normative, whether that, uh, who are outside of the mainstream, right, for various reasons, um, that, that that experience itself becomes a kind of a trauma that is uh even more ghostly in the way that it kind of slips from our grasp, and so queer theorists turn to this language that resonates with trauma in order to to negotiate and navigate that uh, that kind of structural oppression.
0: Does that uh, does naming trauma as the connection between queerness and the gothic imply that if we lived in a world that uh, did was not sort of uh, habitually traumatizing towards queer people that this connection between queerness and Gothic might not be as strong?
1: I think that's a really great question. I certainly don't want to be reductive in the way that I'm sort of linking trauma and queer culture because queer folks, you know, create culture uh, both within and outside of traumatic experience. And, you know, it's a danger to pathologize an entire community. Um, But, you know, I think that even if homophobia and transphobia were no longer in existence, what uh, I point to in my book is the sort of very small interpersonal um, misunderstandings, judgments, and biases that that uh, people talk about as microaggressions kind of mm-hmm. accumulate to create this experience of trauma. And, um, you know, I, I have a hard time imagining that that human relationality will ever be outside of, of that kind of experience. And so I, I do think that gothicism will continue to be sort of useful to Understand and navigate those kinds of small scale accumulated interpersonal traumas. But also, you know, um, I think that Gothicism is, it uh, evokes existential questions for humans. So even outside of the way that it kind of helps us communicate the slippery experience of trauma, it also, you know, is so. Uh, interesting to us as humans because it helps us think through ideas of hybridity the question um, of humanity versus monstrosity or or um, being animalistic the question of existing on the margins and so I think that gothicism is always going to be something that humans turn to when they're when they're trying to create but without, in an imaginary world where, you know, all oppression is gone, I think they would just have different kinds of
0: resonances. Mm -hmm. And part of what we are naming when we call something queer is a certain kind of oppositional stance toward the mainstream. So it's hard to imagine what even it would mean for someone to be queer in a world that didn't have any homophobia or transphobia in, in a way.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, right? The sort of notion of identity, um, is, is both limiting and empowering in the way that it creates community sort of in relation to the idea of a norm and, and the margins.
0: Uh, you use kind of a analysis of Gothic tropes on a surprising element of queer culture, which is lesbian pulp fiction <laughs> of the mid 20th century. Uh, not maybe a genre that a lot of people would think of as Gothic. Uh, But why do you feel like a gothic frame is useful in analyzing that material?
1: So I I was um, doing some archival research at the One National Gay and Lesbian Archives in Los Angeles and looking at uh, their collection of lesbian pulp fiction um, paperbacks that they had in a box in, in their archives that hadn't yet been cataloged. And I was sort of digging through them. And as I was digging through them, um, I noticed that these, these themes started to pop up in on the covers. And, and you know, the lesbian pulp cover art is sort of uh, famously uh, sort of, I guess, campy, people might say, but um, it's got the excesses of the the sort of straight male gaze, right? So mm-hmm. uh, lesbian pulp covers are often um, designed for a kind of voyeuristic, straight, uh, pornographic consumption. Um, but also they often had uh, dark covers, dark ink um they had language that had to do with with twilight and being strange and being othered, and um, they had a lot of language that had to do with kind of the the horrors of um, same sex sexuality, and so I sort of looked into the, the the historical time frame in which these were being created. As we know, the mid century in the United States is sort of uh, notoriously um, conservative in terms of mm-hmm. its uh, sexual norms and its expectations around domesticity, so uh, it's it's really perplexing as to why were uh, these paperback novels so popular at a time when we thought that when, that we think was so sort of sexually conservative, and um, one of the The things I point to is that the way that the creators of lesbian pulp cover art were able to get these books past the extreme censorship of the 1950s and early 1960s in the United States was by making it seem um, kind of scary. To have same-sex sexuality. So at the same time that uh, these covers were marketing towards um, sort of the pornographic voyeurism, they were also saying, look, you can read about uh, lesbian sex in this book, uh, but we also have to say that lesbian sex is scary and horrifying and dark and on the margins and socially isolating and will lead to, you know, psychological dissolution um, and so the way that they negotiated the censor- censorship at the time was kind of by turning to the, the concept of horror and gothicism as a way of coding lesbian sexuality as kind of monstrous and um, contained in um, sort of dark subcultural spaces. Uh, but what's interesting to me um, is how lesbian Uh, And I focus on lesbian pulp, but there was also gay male pulp that was really popular. And there's some really great studies of that. But lesbians in the United States definitely found and read lesbian pulp fiction, um, even though they may not have been the primary audience. And even though same sex desire was coded as scary and monstrous, uh, it also became a way for them to kind of find representation and find uh, each other in a time when there was no internet. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's sort of
0: definitely don't go to this one street in the West village, because that's where the scary <laughs> lesbians are. You wouldn't exactly. want to be caught dead in that place.
1: Right. And like, oh, let's just drop the name of the street and the name of this bar. And, you know, right. um, and, uh, so it's, it's, uh, playing with these kind of multiple levels of meaning. And, um, that itself is very gothic, right? In the way that I described uh, gothic fiction as being both a way, a titillating way to observe human depravity and perversity, but also conservative in its aims, that the monster can show us, uh, you know, another way of existing in the world, but also the monster must be destroyed at the end. That was exactly the same as uh, lesbian pulp fiction. Um, there were censorship rules that said that, Sure, you can show lesbianism in these books, but we, by the end, they either have to die or get married or be um, institutionalized as mentally ill because we have to teach the lesson that that this sexual transgression is, um, you know, monstrous and problematic.
0: Um, right. So this trope that you can be gay as long as you die or get married at the end—I mean—was actually kind of handed down by, by censors, both within publishing companies and, and outside of the companies. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it was def- There were, there were governmental level censors that were outside of the publishing companies and the publishing companies were doing their best to um, make money, to maximize their profits within the system of censorship that they were subject to. Um, mm-hmm. Cause they certainly didn't want to get, um, you know, arrested for, transmitting pornography across state lines, for example, um, that they weren't interested in wasting their time with that. They weren't trying to make a stand necessarily about censorship. They were just trying to sort of skim under the surface of, of sensors, sort of get around that in order to make a profit.
0: And you even write that some of them tried to pass these pulp fiction novels off as like scientific literature, right?
1: Yes. There is absolutely this thread of, um, of Pulp Fiction, where uh, it would say something like, this fascinating study of the human mind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then they would have (laughs) little blurbs by doctors and psychiatrists on the back. um, And sometimes those blurbs were even to say, it will really help you understand, you know, the tortured minds of people who feel like they can't fit into normal, quote unquote, society. Um, And so there was a sort of a a way to get around the sensors by pathologizing uh, what was inside, calling it a case study, for example.
0: Yeah, there was, there was one that where the doctor said something like, you know, lesbians are are not to be feared, but pitied or something yes. like that.
1: <laughs> so I,
0: I had to send that to a friend of mine who's a lesbian. And she, she said, yes, I am, I am to be pitied. This is
1: true. <laughs> I prefer to be feared and pitied. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, why not have it all?
0: Uh Uh-huh. You write about the novels of Anne Bannon, who I I hadn't heard of before I read your book. Could you describe what makes her kind of unique among authors of lesbian pulp?
1: Yeah. So Anne Bannon is a kind of classic lesbian pulp writer. She did a series uh, that people call the Bebo Brinker Chronicles that follow a young lesbian named Bebo Brinker as she uh, makes her way to Greenwich Village to find her kind. Um, as you, as you mentioned, you know, looking in the literature about uh, lesbians in order to figure out where they congregate and then just show up there with, there's a, one of the covers of um, one of the Bebo Brigger books has a picture of uh, presumably Be- Bebo standing on a street corner with a suitcase, you know, just showing up in Greenwich Village Mm -hmm. and and going into a bar and and hoping that uh, she would find community there. But what um, makes Anne Bannon unique is that, uh, as as I've been describing, lesbian pulp fiction was often written for uh, non-lesbian readers, and it was often written by non-lesbian writers. Um, And so in that way, it was... Often, you know, very exploitative, and uh, you know, not uh, as nuanced. Maybe not very accurate yeah, not point. as accurate yeah. or nuanced of a of a representation as you might find if someone was writing it, you know, from their own experience. So, Anne Bannon was one of the uh, lesbian writers of lesbian pulp, and in her Bebo Brinker Chronicles, she plays with the, the tropes of mid-century lesbian pulp, but also does so in a more complex and sort of
0: interesting
1: manner than some of the more pornographic versions of Pulp Fiction.
0: You also write about uh, some of the responses of gay men during the AIDS pandemic to uh, the kind of accusation that they were monstrous or that they were you know, to be feared. Uh, you write about uh, Gil Quadros' book uh, *City of God*, and he—you you describe how he uses kind of monstrous tropes in writing about AIDS. Could you describe uh, a bit about this book? It's—I I don't think it's very well known.
1: It's—it's it's not. Uh, he, Gil Quadros, was writing in the late '80s and early '90s, and he passed away from complications of AIDS in uh, the mid early to mid nineties. And so he didn't have a chance to create a huge body of work before he died, but uh, he did have some short stories and poetry published in anthologies. And then his full length text city of God was published and it is a mixed genre book. It has a series of short stories in the first half and then poetry in the second half. And um, it's this really uh horrifying and beautiful and so sorrowful uh, treatment of existing as a gay man during the height of the AIDS crisis. And um, he, you know, he takes the horrors of HIV and he makes them beautiful, but doesn't take away from the horrific aspects of it. He doesn't Mm. shy away from it. And I would say that in response to the attribution of monstrosity to gay men during the AIDS crisis, um, there were a couple of different paths that people took. There was one path was a more kind of what we might call now homonormative assimilation To say that, hey, uh, we may be gay, but we're just like you. We love the same as straight people. We don't, uh, we're not uh, queer or hypersexual or, you know, monstrously perverse the way the media might make us out to be. We just want to get married and have kids and uh, buy a house and do all the normal things that uh, everybody else wants to do, right? That's that was one kind of response to that attribution of monstrosity. Um, but Gil Quadras didn't really go that route, right? He did a more sort of anti-normative queer response. And, and in the way that I've been talking about the reappropriation of monstrosity, he took that on and he said, if all that the world will give me is death, and suffering a monstrosity in this, this horrifying moment of the AIDS crisis, then that's my medium and that's what I'm going to use and give back to you in the form of this art. Um, and so I talk about the way that he kind of takes the, the things that have, were used against the gay community at that time and um, morphs them into this kind of beautiful piece of mixed genre writing.
0: Hmm. Does the fact that it's mixed genre play into why you describe it as gothic? I mean, that's that seems sort of a Frankenstein like uh, way of assembling a book.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's that's how I talk about it. It, It's like he takes these bits and pieces of different genres and different time periods and different narrators and he um, sutures them together to create this Whole that that exceeds all of the pieces that that he pulls together and sort of make it something that um, sort of spills over the bounds of what we would think of as a kind of a traditional novel or a traditional book of poetry. And I think, yeah, that that itself is a sort of a, a, a monstrous form. And there's a real sort of beauty and power in that.
0: How did you first become aware of this book?
1: Um, I actually read it in uh, graduate school. My, um, my mentor, who was George Haggerty, who wrote a book called um, Queer Gothic and talks about the way that Gothic fiction is inherently queer, as I've, I've been talking about today he uh, had us read this Gil Quadros book in a, in a graduate seminar. And it just, it really stuck with me throughout the years. It's been a long time since then. And I, I just keep returning to it. There's something, um, so excessively melancholy and beautiful about the way that Quadros, uh, works with writing in order to kind of, uh, make the horrors of the AIDS crisis uh, into this sort of excessive, um, almost Baroque piece of literature that is, is beautiful in its, in its grotesqueness, which is also a kind of a monstrousness.
0: Hmm. You also write quite a bit about queer performance art, uh, which is the ostensible reason why I I asked you to be on your books (laughs) of performing arts. Um so could you describe some of the performances of, of Ron Athy and how he uses uh, gothic tropes in his work? Yes
1: yeah, so um Ron Athy was uh an early like proto goth punk performer in um the 80s he was famous for being part of a group called Premature Ejaculation and uh he was diagnosed with HIV in the mid eighties and he still is living and performing today. And so he, his work sort of traces the the path of HIV in, in our culture and the way that it um, was sort of an early phenomenon to the height of the, the pandemic to um, what people might characterize as quote unquote post-AIDS. These days, as we sort of um, have a new approach to HIV with uh, PrEP and the the new the new kind of treatments that people have been able to live with uh, throughout the years, and his work has shifted in response to um, that trajectory as well. Um, but he's most famous for his use of blood as a medium in his performance art. He was a part of the kind of culture war critique in the 1990s um, where folks like Jesse Helms uh, were protesting the use of uh, NEH funds for funding this kind of perverse art that Ron Athey represented. And he, he has a very famous piece that was the spark of those those debates in culture in the 90s uh, called the human printing press in which he um, used a scalpel to create cuts on the back of a fellow performer, which he blotted with paper towels and then clipped the paper towels up onto a clothesline and and uh, pulled them out. So they hung over the audience. And um, even though his per, his fellow performer, whose blood it was, was not HIV positive, and even though those towels were not dripping or threatening the audience in any way, it became this um, kind of hysterical flashpoint for um, the nineteen nineties and the, the questions of like what the government should be supporting in terms of art and how the uh, the folks who wanted to censor his work spun that as a threat to the audience, um, as if he were injecting them with his HIV positive blood.
0: Hmm. And
1: um, even though that was not founded in any kind of reality at all. And so what I think is so interesting about his work is that uh, just the fact that he's playing with blood as a medium it sparks this, uh, this fear, this horror response in audiences that is really fascinating to me. And I think it speaks to that, those kinds of existential questions that gothicism brings up. Um, the idea that if I'm sitting in an audience and there's blood present and I know that the performer is HIV positive, um, if that makes me, panic if that makes me run away or faint or leave the space or, you know, call for the censorship of that artist. Why? Right. And, and um, I think that it's because it makes people imagine that their bodies are penetrable, that they are somehow going to be injected or uh, they're their distinctness, their separation from those people that culture would label as monstrous is less uh, firm and less safe than they had imagined before they entered that performance space. And uh, so in that way, I, I liken Ron Athey's work to a kind of a vampirism because there's this, this famous scene in um, Bram Stoker's Dracula where... Uh, Van Helsing comes upon not Dracula feeding on Mina, the young woman, but uh, Dracula has opened up a a cut in his own chest and is holding Mina's head to his chest and forcing her to drink his blood. So, Mm. uh, a lot of times we don't think about the sort of reciprocal exchange of fluids that vampirism entails and the way that that disrupts our sense of like separateness or our own ability to be in charge of um, our, our behaviors or our thoughts or mm-hmm. our, uh, even our level of infection. And so these work really kind of plays with that through the use of blood as a medium.
0: So this kind of horrified reaction that he gets out of someone like Jesse Helms is is uh, in some way part of the point of his work, right?
1: Yeah, I think he intends in a lot of ways to, uh, to, to really evoke a visceral and emotional response from his audiences. Um, and where, you know, uh, as you know, performance is a very difficult... Uh, medium to sort of predict its -hmm. effects, right? You can't control the way an audience responds. You can't even really predict how an audience will respond. It's this sort of free form, open genre that where like so much can happen. And so I think that he intends to use his body as a medium. He intends to uh, use blood in order to navigate his experience as an HIV positive man, living through the trajectory of the AIDS crisis and its aftermath and what happens to the audience. Um, the, I think that that's the part that's, that's open, right? right. Uh, that he doesn't, it's contingent and he doesn't need to nail that down. And, and that's kind of the beauty and power of, of performance.
0: And part of what differentiates performance or performance art from like theater is that everything that's happening is real. It's not, it's, there's no simulated blood. There's no simulated cuts. It's, yes. it's, it's the actual performer's body is undergoing these, uh, these transformations.
1: Yeah. And um, I talk about this when I talk about some of the other performance artists in, in the book, but um, the, the fact that it's real has the potential not only to express kind of the trauma, for example, of, of living with HIV through the AIDS crisis and and through, um, the very obvious indifference that the United States had for gay men during that time. um, but it also has the potential to actually traumatize the audience members Mm -hmm. because there is actual blood there and people have very visceral responses to, to, to that um, experience and um, so it is a very unique opportunity to create recreate to mix the experiences of trauma with uh, the performer and the audience and to force audiences to really think about their own um, complicity in the structures that create traumatic experience for the performers and um, not allow them to have the comfort of a sense of separateness, or the ability to leave the space unaffected or unscathed.
0: Hmm, that's so interesting. That idea that that the, this artwork almost traumatizes the audience as it's invoking these uh, traumatic memories in the performers.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's that's the the fascinating part of this that uh, many people in trauma studies say that you know you can't traumatize someone by having them read about your trauma this is maybe before people acknowledged the possibility of having vicarious trauma right a kind of a Mm -hmm. traumatic response to the witnessing of trauma but not the direct experience of trauma um but performance is not literature right it is Mm -hmm. real bodies in a real space and real things are happening, and the audience sometimes is asked not only to observe, but to participate, and then they encounter the ethics of whether or not they want to be a person who volunteers to interact with a body in a space, and um, to do what they're being asked to do in that context, and so there's there's so much that goes on there that really has the potential to open up thoughts and conversations around trauma and complicity.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'd love to get kind of your opinion on the ethics of, of the, that type of performance. You describe one performance work by Ron Athey where he begins the performance wearing a wig and you realize pretty quickly that the wig is actually kind of fastened onto the skin of his skull so that when he pulls it out, he begins dripping blood. I mean, do you think this, this seems to be a, I don't know, a type of performance that would be very unlikely to emerge at this precise cultural moment when people are so concerned about the potential traumatizing effects of, you know, even reading depictions of of rape or sexual assault. So, I mean, do you think that there is a genuine ethical question about whether this type of performance is maybe not whether it should be allowed, but whether it is uh, kind of ethically above board?
1: I think that... That question has everything to do with consent. Mm. So um, the, the conversation around potentially traumatizing exposure often turns to the question of content warning or trigger warning. And mm-hmm. um, although that has become something that's polarizing amongst a lot of people, like whether we're obligated to give people trigger warnings, et cetera. Um, I think that arises out of the idea that people should be aware of the situations that they are being put into either by a person in power or um, just because they're in a performance space and it's not easy to leave a performance space um, in the middle of a performance. Right. Uh, And so I think that in terms of something that is potentially disturbing it becomes problematic to imply that just the existence of a disturbing performance is unethical where it becomes unethical is if it is perhaps uh, forced on an audience without consent or in a way that uh, power dynamics limit the possibility for consent. Um, Yeah, because... Yeah, I think I'll I'll stop there.
0: But yeah, I mean, that issue of consent is really tricky because it, it, you can't really meaningfully consent if you don't know what the performance is going to entail. And fully telling the audience what the performance is going to entail might ruin part of the experience of watching the performance.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that... I would say that surprise is a necessary element of these performances that I describe. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I don't know to what degree, I would say that it would be ruined by consent uh, or by informed consent or, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that, I think that the way that we have thought about power and spaces uh, necessarily can evolve and shift. And I don't know that it's necessarily causing something to be lost in that shift, but um, there are ways to sort of explore and examine the nature of power and consent within the context of performance that uh, is potentially, you know, really generative and not necessarily a way of sort of losing something. I feel like, um, that becomes a kind of a, like a scarcity model or, uh, a turn towards, towards tradition as, as something that is just because that it always has been this way means that it's necessarily a loss if it shifts or changes. So I really love the idea of thinking about, um, new ways to imagine power and consent in spaces that can both be, um, difficult and uncomfortable and challenging, um, but that also takes into account uh, the idea that certain people have kind of power and other people um, are subject to that power. And so, you know, that should take, should be part of the consideration and the conversation.
0: Right. Uh, finally, to end on perhaps a, a, a lighter note, you talk about the TV show True Blood as a kind of metaphor for queer politics in the age of neoliberalism. Could you unpack what you mean by this, uh, this metaphor?
1: Yeah. So I, I end the book by talking about true blood because I think that uh, true blood is a really interesting uh, use of sort of an overt link between queerness and gothicism and the metaphor of the vampire. And um, I don't know if you remember, but the, beginning of the series, and the series is based on a series of books by Charlene Harris. They talk about vampires coming out of the coffin, which is, you know, an overt (laughs) link to the coming out of the closet (laughs) narrative. And so vampires in this world have been in the coffin, right, in the closet, hiding their existence from humanity for centuries. And now they want to come out and live uh, amongst society, and have all of this the rights that quote unquote normal humans have. And so it becomes this very overt metaphor for uh, queerness in contemporary culture being out and asking for protections the basics, uh, protections of civil liberties and civil rights, and access to normative cultural institutions like marriage, for example. Um, and so the show in sort of turning to that metaphor of uh, queerness and coming out of the closet and coming out of the coffin, uh, they end up reestablishing the divide between um, being a good vampire and being a va- bad vampire as the good vampires are the vampires that want to mainstream to assimilate into Mm -hmm. cultural norms and the institutions that already exist in society. And the bad vampires tend to be the ones that are coded as more queer, more anti-normative. They don't want to own houses. They don't want to get married in monogamous couplings. They want to live in nests and they want to um, be more nomadic and they want to have uh, more sexual freedom. And so in the show that might seem on the surface to be a kind of example of Gothic queer culture, it is actually, I, I argue a kind of a more conservative turn kind of similar to the early examples of Mm -hmm. 18th century Gothic fiction, where they're saying, okay, uh, to be, uh, to be queer is okay, but you can't, but we now are going to divide that queerness into uh, assimilative queerness versus anti-normative queerness, and so then it moves the sort of mainstream LGBT folks as the, the vampire metaphor um, into the the category of normative, and then further expels those who. Are anti normative who don't want to assimilate into the existing structures as um, the ones that we now code as monstrous. And so it just sort of shifts everything down one level and in but re establishes kind of the same logic that has always been there. And a lot of folks would say that assimilation into the institutions uh, is buying into the institutional and structural oppressions that create inequality in the first place. Um, and so buying into those institutions wholeheartedly and unproblematically is not actually opening those institutions up necessarily. It's just uh, perpetuating the status quo and continuing to um, create new forms of monsters who are then marginalized and replicate the the structures that create inequality in the first place.
0: So with True Blood, you sort of, uh, come full circle back to an analysis of the essential conservatism of certain types of Gothic.
1: Yeah. And, and really, uh, Gothicism becomes this sort of battleground space. It is a sort of place on the margins with these tropes and metaphors that, um, help us navigate or understand or uh, conceptualize the the place in society where things start to be questioned, where people push up against the norms and expectations and where people push back and try to sort of reestablish those norms by othering the folks that um, would push up against the norms. And so gothicism pops up once again in that space where that battle is occurring as a kind of a metaphor that helps us, uh, if not uh, reestablish the norms or challenge norms, at least to sort of engage with them and um, think about these issues uh, in ways that are sort of existential and interesting and and dark and, and appealing to so many people and I, and that's mm-hmm. why you know we return again and again to that kind of battleground space using gothicism
0: yeah I find this idea so interesting that even if a, a, a piece of Gothic literature is ultimately going to come out and condemn these alternative ways of living it's at least exposed the reader to those alternative ways so <laughs> yeah. there's a, a kind of simultaneous subversive and conservative move even in the most uh, traditional, uh, examples of Gothic fiction, right?
1: Exactly. And that happens again and again. It, I always think about um, Vito Russo's Celluloid Closet, where he uh, you know, talks about the way that gay, lesbian, and trans characters have been portrayed in U.S. cinema throughout the 20th century, and how there uh, had, at the time of his writing the book and the documentary that was created in the 90s, there was not... Uh, Fully three dimensional reclaimed portrayal of LGBT characters. They always were characterized as either the the laughing, uh, the laughing matter, the joke, the butt of the joke, or the mm-hmm. the uh, perverse monstrous aggressor that needs to be uh, destroyed in the end, or the serial killer, right, um, that also needs to be destroyed in the end, right, uh, but. Throughout all of that time, that doesn't mean that queer viewers have not been watching these characters and uh, sort of squeezing any bit of representation out of Mm -hmm. that portrayal that we can, um, even while in the end, it is ultimately sort of, it's conservative and marginalizing. So there's always that dual function going on.
0: Well, Laura Westengard, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about your fascinating book, Gothic Queer Culture.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking about it.